we are continuing our journey into uh, those who were at the foot of the cross. Uh, this, uh, uh, <clears throat> for several weeks, we've been looking and studying what it means uh, for those individuals who were near Jesus. It's, uh, and we're drawing our inspiration from a book written by Amy Jill Levine um, about uh, witnesses at the cross. Uh, in the first week, and here's a little quick recap, 30-second uh, recap for uh, where we've been through uh, so far. The first Sunday, we looked at um, Simon of Cyrene, and we focused uh, on what it means to deny ourselves and follow Christ. And as Simon of Cyrene was seen as an example who uh, was there walking with Christ, uh, carrying the cross and following uh, Jesus. And the challenge for us was that we would deny ourselves and follow Christ. That we would deny ourselves and follow Christ. Many times we looked at different scriptures where we give excuses as to why we don't want to be with Christ or we don't want to do it right now. And we try to postpone it and give other excuses. And Simon of Cyrene gives us an example of what it means to carry the cross and follow Jesus. And then we looked at the other victims who were there, the other two individuals who were there uh, next to Jesus uh, being crucified. And one, sometimes we have identified them as the good thief and the bad thief. The good guy said, remember me in your kingdom. And the not so good said, God, if you are truly the son of God, save yourself and save me as well. And the challenge for us was sometimes when we are going through difficult times, when we are faced with challenges that we just cannot bear, we need to offer those prayers. God, help me now. And God can take those prayers. And last week, we looked at the centurion. Last week, we looked at the centurion, and we looked at what all, all the things that he saw and did as he journeyed with Jesus at the cross. The centurion was present when Pilate was there, and when Pilate washed his hands and condemned Jesus to die. The centurion was there listening to the conversation that Jesus was having with these two other victims who were right next to him. The centurion was there when he heard the conversation that we read today. The centurion was present when he heard the words Jesus say, Father, forgive them. And the question that the author posed to us was... Is the centurion guilty and can he be forgiven? The question is, yes, the centurion is guilty. He's guilty. He saw an innocent, he carried out an execution of an innocent man. He was at the trial and he knew that he was innocent. But I think the challenge for all of us is we all find ourselves in the footsteps of that centurion that we are all guilty. Yes, the centurion is guilty and should not be forgiven. And so are you and I. We are not supposed to be forgiven for the sins that we have committed. An innocent man should not die on the cross for us to be forgiven. And we said that this centurion confessed Jesus as his savior. What does that mean for us? It means when you and I say yes to Jesus... It's simple as this. It's simply saying, God, I'm sorry for the sins that I've committed. Will you be my king, my Lord? Help me to say yes to you all the time. Help me to live 
the way you have lived. Help me to walk the walk that you walk. Help me to live out all that you taught. That is as simple as that. And I invite you, if you've never said yes to Jesus, uh, that you would have an opportunity to do that this day. So today we come to the beloved disciple who was at the foot of the cross as well. One of the things that is interesting about the Gospel of John is it never names this beloved disciple. In the entire book, as you read through it, as you kind of go through it, it doesn't name this person. They just call him the beloved disciple, and that's it. Although when you think about it, naming something is really important, don't you think? Right? If you ever were a parent, you had the joy of naming your children, right? I have four kids, and um, we all have a meaning uh, as to why we named each child a certain thing, right? Summer means something. It means Ocean City, Maryland, I hope. I mean, New Jersey, I hope. <laughs> That's where they met, by the way, <laughs> um, right? Um, right? Names are important, Right? We, I mean, or for some of us, we had the opportunity to name our pets. You know, we take great pride in naming things. You know, oh my goodness, like we name our cars. How many of you named your car? Oh, come on, nobody? <laughs> We're in church. All right, one, two, three, four. All right. I named my first car Bertha. You're wondering why, I'll tell you, and if you're a car junkie, you'll know. Bertha was an um, Oldsmobile Royale 88. It was like a boat, like, so hence Bertha, right? Not only do we like to name things, but we like to give names, we like to give labels to some of our relationships as well. Uh, Josiah, who's seven now, last year at six, he came home one day and he wanted to make a declaration um, he wanted everyone to know, and he came up to me very proud, and he goes, Dad, I have something to tell you. I said, what is it, bud? And he said, Dad, I have a BFF. Do you know what BFF stands for? Best friend forever. I was like, all right, who is BFF? Like, all right, like, you have a good friend. Like, what's his name? He goes, it's Oscar. I was like, all right, Oscar's a great kid. His parents are wonderful people. And about six months ago, he walked into the house, made another announcement, Dad, I have a BFF. I said, dude, don't you already have one? He goes, yeah, apparently you can have two favorites. I don't know. Like, so anyway, he, now his new BFF was Philip. And Philip's a good kid, great parents, right? We love giving labels to relationships uh, that we are in. And we like labeling people as well. And sometimes labels are given to us as well. To each one of us, we are given some sort of a label. When I was growing up uh, in my childhood, all the kids in my neighborhood and school um, would call me LLTT. And the minute they said it, I knew they were talking about me. It was, it was clear as day, and I just knew it, and I would just cringe. I was like, oh, because I knew that they didn't talk about it. any other kid. It was me, they were, like, we'd be playing, we'd be doing different things. He'll be like, oh, man, you're LLTT. And I was like, oh, LLTT. This is what it start, stood for. Looking London, talking Tokyo. I had a lazy eye, all right? I had a lazy eye, and when I was focused on something or doing something, all of a sudden, I'd be doing something, and I'd say... Drew, come here, throw me the ball. And there's Drew, right? Like I was looking, London, 
It's talking to Tokyo, right? Get it? Come on, church. You all need to laugh, right? That was funny. I was like, who came up with that? That's brilliant. Whoever came up with that. Anyway, but I would just cringe and I would be like, because I couldn't do anything to stop it from happening. I was just born with a lazy eye and would just like drift off. And I, I didn't know it was happening. You know, it was, I just couldn't control it, right? I just couldn't control it. And that is what my friends would call me, looking London, talking Tokyo. And I would cringe. I would feel so small and so alone because I just couldn't fix it. And it would bother me, right? As I mentioned earlier, we like giving labels to identify different things, but the beloved disciple, right? In the Bible, when you look at it, we give labels to some of the disciples that followed Jesus, right? This is well known. Thomas is called Doubting Thomas, right? There's a label that's associated with this guy. Peter is called the rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church, is what Jesus said. And on the day of Pentecost, when Jesus stood and preached, uh, and when Peter stood and preached on the day of Pentecost, the church was born on that rock. Christ built that church. And as we are in the season of Lent, getting ready for Easter, we hear Judas, and we immediately say, traitor, right? Judas the traitor. But here, the Gospel of John, the beloved disciple, is not given a name. The first time we are introduced to uh, the beloved disciple, uh, we all think it is John, by the way, because it says the Gospel of John. I think he was writing in third person and didn't quite refer to himself. The first time we see uh, this beloved disciple is uh, John chapter 1, verse 35 to 40. And here, there are two disciples who are following John the Baptist. And they were kind of following John the Baptist, and they see Jesus being there, and they start following him. And then... In verse 40, Peter is introduced as well. And then again in John chapter 13, verse 23, uh, we hear that the beloved disciple was sitting next to Jesus, the, the disciple that Jesus loved. That's what it says right there. One of the most memorable dinners that Jesus could have ever thrown. And the beloved disciple was sitting right next to him. Amy Jill Levine kind of, makes, asks a question, kind of pokes fun at the story, and says, do you think Jesus had a favorite disciple? If he was sitting right next to him? Did Jesus have a BFF? Right? Or did Jesus have a BDF? Beloved disciple forever. You know, that's my acronym for the day. You all can copyright it, use it whenever, make mugs out of it. Right? Did he have one? I don't know. As I said, um, anytime anything significant happens, the beloved disciple is there. Uh, in the courtyard, when uh, John chapter 18, 15, uh, at the high priest's courtyard where Jesus is in trial, and they're all talking about it. And here we see that the beloved disciple was there along with Peter. And then um, uh, we see that the, the beloved disciple is always around near Peter. As I said earlier about um, the last supper that Jesus had, had Peter is always kind of around him. One of the images that we have for the Lord's Supper uh, is uh, the one that is painted by uh, Da Vinci, 
where Jesus is sitting at a high table and all the people are kind of sitting in front of him as if Jesus was kind of taking a selfie or something like that. Like, you know, everybody's sitting up front and people are there. They're kind of like posing for the camera. Uh, but that's not quite what happened. Uh, if you can put this slide up, uh, Jesus was actually sitting at a table called uh, triclinium. Uh, it's uh, essentially a table that is three sides. So you can see on one side that John was sitting right at the bottom, and Jesus would have been in the middle, and the one next to him would have been Judas. And this would have been very low to the ground. And some biblical authors say that during this time, you can kind of read the story of uh, the Last Supper as if Jesus was putting his head, as he was sitting on the ground, that he was putting his head on John's uh, shoulder. That he was so close to him. And then we see, as I said, we see always Peter close to where Jesus was. And you see, um, when the beloved disciple shows up after the resurrection story, Peter and the beloved disciple have a foot race to go to the cross. And they try to find it. One place where you don't see the beloved disciple is at the foot of the cross. The beloved disciple, sorry, if one place you don't see Peter is at the foot of the cross. Everywhere else, whenever Peter is mentioned, the beloved disciple is there, except for the foot of the cross. This is what we read in John chapter 20, uh, verse 25. Near the cross, Jesus stood with his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. In verse 26, this is what we read today. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple with whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, he said, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. See, Jesus is entrusting his earthly mother to the beloved disciple. From that moment on, the beloved disciple took responsibility and care for the mother of Jesus. See, in the midst of this great tragedy, in the midst of this great tragedy, despite all the challenges that Jesus is facing, Jesus looks to his mother and says, here is your son, and here is your mother. Here we see that the relationship of care and comfort are not grounded in biology, but rather in love. The image when I see this of the disciple continuing to care for Jesus' mother, I'm reminded of Jesus' teaching from John chapter 13, 34. It reminds me that Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. And that's essentially what the disciple is doing here. The beloved disciple is doing here. A biblical scholar named Thomas Slater says that when Jesus named the beloved disciple to take care of his mother, he was essentially saying that you are my successor. Everything that Jesus owned and had was given as an inheritance to this beloved disciple. And after this story is over, we see Jesus dying on the cross and he's put in a tomb. And on the third day he is risen and Christian tradition kind of identifies the beloved disciple as one of the first people there along with Peter. And then there's another mention about 
uh, the beloved disciple in John 21, 24, where the beloved disciple is said that he would not experience death. And many scholars wonder why that was put there. Maybe the community that was retelling the stories of Jesus and rehearing those stories wanted their beloved disciple never to experience persecution from the Roman Empire. We don't know what the meaning of those words are. But the beloved disciple is mentioned in that light that he would not experience death. So the question for us to ponder this morning uh, for all of us is you can say, Pastor, it's great uh, that you're talking about the beloved disciple. We think it's John, as the Christian tradition says, sounds like a wonderful person. Maybe he's Jesus, his favorite disciple or beloved disciple forever, BDF. I'm glad you shared all this information with us today. Thank you for doing the research. So what? So what? So what's the point? Yes, the beloved disciple sounds amazing. Was there with Jesus all through, unlike Peter who ran away. Started right at the early of his ministry and walked with Jesus till the point of his death. And even at resurrection, we see the beloved disciple. So what? So what? I'm glad you asked that question. So what? I started out today by talking about the labels that people put on us. The, those labels that we wear that just cut us to our core. Uh, labels that make sure that we are aware of the inadequacies that we have. The labels that we put on ourselves that say that it is not, that we are somehow not enough. Another question that I want us to ask us uh, this morning is, yes, people put labels on us, but are there any labels that you are putting on yourself? How are you, what labels are you wearing today? Are you wearing labels of insecurity? Labels of self-loathing? Having a sense that you are unworthy, not good enough? One of my favorite authors uh, is a Catholic priest named Henry Nouwen, and he wrote a, a book called Life of the Beloved. And I'm paraphrasing what Nouwen talks about it in his book. He says that we continue to wear labels of either self-loathing or we wear labels of arrogance. We wear labels of self-loathing to kind of communicate, feel like we're not enough. And we chase after things. And we try to run after different things because we just feel we're not enough. We don't like who we are. And another label that we wear, according to Navin, is a label of arrogance. And he notes one of the reasons that we wear the label of arrogance is because deep down we don't feel that we are worthy enough. And we feel so desperately to prove ourselves. Because deep within our hearts, we think we're not enough. Friends, this morning, I want you to find yourself in the story of the beloved disciple. This morning, Jesus is looking at you and he's saying, I'm giving you a new label. That you are 
a beloved disciple of Jesus Christ. He looks at me and doesn't call me LLTD, but rather he says, Johnson, you are my beloved son. Beloved means God loves you no matter what. No matter what, God loves you. God is pouring out his love on you this day and looking at you and saying, no matter what, you are my beloved son and you are my beloved daughter. And God today is giving you the label beloved. Friends, it's my prayer that you would shed whatever labels that remind you that you are not enough. That you would shed the labels of self-loathing and, and arrogance. That we would live each day in the knowledge that no matter what, God loves me. No matter how tall or how small, no matter how big or how tiny, no matter how popular or how insignificant you are, no matter how rich or how poor you are, no matter when you fill in the label that you are hanging on to, you fill in the label that people have put on you and say, no matter what, I am God's beloved. Amen. And I want to share with you some of the thoughts that some of our church members shared with us about what it means for them uh, to love unconditionally and also to be reminded that uh, they are loved unconditionally. Hear this. unconditional love is showing somebody love during the hard times and the good times and it doesn't feel difficult to do and it doesn't feel like it's your job to love somebody but rather loving that person comes so simply and it's just easy for you to love that person it's not like you believe that they have to do something in return for you right you're not expecting somebody to do that but rather you're just doing it because you want to make them happy and it makes you happy to love them so easily. To me, I believe love can be simple, but it can also be in a more general and like it can be in an extravagant way to love someone. It can be as simple as checking in on somebody and taking the time out of your day to check on somebody. Or it can be praying for them during a hard time and they might not even know that you're praying for them, but that's just an easy way to show somebody that you love them. In many instances, when like I show people love, even though I may not like them at that time, or if we're having a disagreement at that time, my love for them will never end. You know, that's how I practice unconditional love. Even if we get in a disagreement and because of that disagreement or argument that we had, we haven't talked in years or months, I will never not be there for them. I will always be there for them. Um, I will always pray for them. I'll always think of them. If they ever need me, I'm here for them. And in that way, I'm showing unconditional love and that's how I'm practicing it. And I'll never fail to love them. I've been asked to give a description of unconditional love in my opinion that only comes from God himself. That is the only person who can truly, in my mind, share unconditional love for, for us. What is love? Love is uh, 
besides that trite statement about never having to be sorry, uh, love is really kind of this ability to uh, see beyond a person's faults, to, to really just care about them. It's sacrificial. It's caring about other people more than caring about yourself. And uh, so I think about a situation where I've had to exhibit love towards another person when I wasn't particularly fond of them to begin with. Well, as a social worker, I've certainly had many clients where this has been the case, or as a dean at the university, whether it be disgruntled students or many times disgruntled faculty, I've had to push beyond my own reactions to that and to conditionally, unconditionally rather, love them at all times, even when initially I didn't particularly care for their actions or their attitudes. Thank you for reminding us that you love us unconditionally. You love us no matter what. God, help us to wear that label this day. Help us to boldly walk uh, knowing that we are your beloved son and daughter. God, we, we pray that uh, you would take away those labels that make us feel not enough. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.